something like we have just done, written by Bach, we are moved by the realization that there is such a thing as a scene in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> that there is not that which merely appears out of nowhere, not something that is not slow, but whatever else has arisen, Tomorrow, that which has been taught clearly from the Bible itself. Yet, nevertheless, there is that which the Church has believed is mighty and great strength. That which is witnessed in the Old Testament. That which is prophesied in the Old Testament. That which the Old Testament saints of God believed in looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and his finished work on Calvary's cross. The wonder of the New Testament Church, as moved with the love of its Savior, and trusting only in the blood of the Lord Jesus, that was committed in reality and not merely in words to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The wonder of the great rise of the Reformation, based upon the overwhelming acceptance of the Bible as a total authority that stood by itself and not needed human interpretation, and the wonder of the finished work of the Lord Jesus whereby justification is only on the basis of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, without human works and without a self-imposed egoism or humanistic trust of man. And when we say all this, it is wonderful, and we feel the flow of the stream. And it is indeed real, we must understand that if the Bible is true, those who have died and accepted Jesus as their Savior, whether in the Old Testament or new, washed by the blood of the Lamb, either looking in forward to him or back upon him, that they are now before the Lord's face in glory, praising him. And that it is not just words, not just a pious expression, not something merely to whip up a, a religious feeling uh, to realize that when we praise him, whether it's in such a service as this or a large service or whether in our individual personal lives, that we are uniting with the church at rest, the church in glory, the church victorious to sing his praise. And all fastened upon the wonder of the blood of the Lamb. So Bach, so Bach could write, glory to the Lamb. And so we sing, and so the reality rests. But having said all this, there is a constant danger which we must face and which we must never minimize. And that is that as we come and accept Christ as our Savior, that these things merely become what we might express as pious expressions in the bad sense of the word that they might only become a, a mental statement, and that is all. There is a great and overwhelming danger that we who stand not in some side stream, not in something that has come out of nowhere in the last few years, as it were, not in something that has taken the word of God and turned it and twisted into a different kind of a thing, but we who stand in the stream of a singer of a writing Bach with his music, a painting Rembrandt, the preaching of a Paul, the teaching of the Lord Jesus in its simplicity, the wonder of the Old Testament prophecy that fasten our feet indeed upon the finished work of Jesus Christ in reality and not in words, there is an overwhelming and constant danger to us that these things also will begin to lose their reality, as it were, slip from our fingers. There's a danger that we accept Christ as our Savior and then act as though the next great supernatural moment is the time when we shall die and see Jesus face to face, that he will come back in space and in time and raise our bodies from the dead. But the Bible does not speak this way. The Bible insists upon the fact that these things are to be real, not just in the thought world, but these things are to be real in practice in the moment of history in which we live. We in this place have an added temptation, as we must quickly acknowledge, and that is as we deal with the intellectual problems of Christianity so constantly, there is a constant danger that for us it will become, uh, become a kind of an intellectual game. And this is terrible, of course. This is the death of all things. It's the death of our own joy in the Lord. It's the death of any use of the Holy Spirit that he might make of us. As we stand and face the 20th century, we're confronted with a certain great thrust the certain great thrust, as we were speaking last night, is the Eastern thought, the Eastern religion, comes in upon us like a flood due to the vacuum that has been left by the liberal preaching of the Protestant Church, as this has come in upon us. And we face, we face the great thrust of the Eastern
Western world with its reducing all things in human life to a dream of God. But let's quickly say it will not do just for us to say it is not so. We are not just a dream of God. God has made us with, with significance. God has made us with meaning. If we have truly accepted Christ as our Savior, then, and let us say it with care, and think about this with care, it, we may reject the concept that man is merely a dream of God, and yet after we have accepted Christ as our Savior, the things of the Christian faith almost become a dream. So often in this place we wrestle with the problem of the modern theologian. And we see as we come to a man like Tillich that ideas are what is involved. We deal in a transcendental realm. And we're back in the area of Plato, of ideas and ideals. And we reject this. And we see the tragedy of it. But having said this again, just as with the other thing, we must quickly acknowledge that having accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we are not careful, the things of the Christian faith only become ideas and ideas. This is our tragedy. There is a double tragedy. There is a tragedy that lets the non-Christian thinking, the non-biblical Christian, Christian thinking come in and, and take over in the intellectual realm. But there is always the danger to those who stand in the place of the stream of the church, the writing of a box, the painting of a Rembrandt, the preaching of a Paul, the teaching of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament teaching, stand upon the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and stand there alone. There is a constant danger to us that in our thinking, in the reality of our lives, again, we will find ourselves only in the circle of ideas and ideas. When we come to the Word of God, we find a wonderful thing, a system presented in the Bible that no other system presents. A true significance, a true answer to the problem of, of reality, of space and time. Reality. History. One has only to remember once more the Rubiad of Omar Khayyam as he turns away from the thinking of his land and says that this reduces all things to merely a dream, a turning of a wheel upon a wall, a mockery of reality. In contrast, how wonderful to turn to the Word of God. Find it rooted in space and in time and history. That Jesus died, not just as a thought, but Jesus died in space and time and in history and locality. That 2,000 years before, God had clearly chosen the place which we find Abraham led three long days' journey to this very, very general situation, to this general situation as a picture of that which Jesus would do in that place. The reality of space and time and history, how wonderful. How wonderful, it's like shaking oneself free, free from that which is indeed a dream in the night. Shaking oneself one, self one free, from free from that which is merely a moment of sickness within a high fever would cause a, an unreality to reality, and that which is unreal to become real. But shaking oneself free from all this, to step into the Word of God, rooted in history, space, time, and the hard stuff of reality. But oh, for those others who by the grace of God have come and escaped, escaped on one side the false thinking of our generation as it has come out of the West and the thinking of the East. How thankful we should be that we have stepped into this other world, this other world of reality, wherein the stuff of life has meaning and where under the blood of the Lamb of God we can come into the presence of God in our own generation. How wonderful. But let us say to each other gently, 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 let us not fall into the other danger, the danger of an orthodoxy, wherein all that is before us is ours. It will not do to say we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior <coughs> in the biblical sense, and then only wait to die. It will not do to live as though the next great supernatural fact to us is to be the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus in space and time and history and the raising of our bodies from the dead. When we turn to the Word of God, we are the, the Bible shakes us and we allow us to stand here. When we come to the Word of God, we are reminded, we are reminded of the overwhelming reality that if these things are true, and if this is the truth of the universe as it is, and we are coming to the presence of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, if these things are true, if they are true, there is to be a reality, not just in our thinking, but in our life now. 
Let us remember the words of John the Baptist as he introduced the Lord Jesus to us. If you open your Bible to the book of John, the first chapter, verses 29 through 34, John 1, 29 through 34, really a very striking, very striking passage. Here John the Baptist speaking as it, as it were, as the last Old Testament prophet, introduces the Christ to whom the other prophets had pointed down through so many centuries. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and there abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And this is a very remarkable passage. Here we, have, here we have John the Baptist speaking as the last Old Testament prophet, and he's saying, all the waiting of the ages is now to be fulfilled and brought to fruition. Here's at hand. Here he is. Here he is. Who is this one? Well, first of all, he speaks of who Christ is. Who Christ is. We must see that constantly the Bible insists upon this fact. To fail to remember that Jesus Christ is one of the three persons of the Trinity, to fail to realize indeed that he has existed forever, to fail to realize that he is God, to make him less than eternal God, is to sweep away all, all the things that are spoken about him. And yet you notice, it does not just say this as an idea, but it brings it down into the reality. It brings it down to reality at two points, and not one but two. First of all, the great cry is, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. And as we turn to that which is the scriptural teaching, we find that all else is based upon this. Man has sinned, man has sinned, man is guilty, because God is holy. And consequently, the great cry of the Old and the New Testament, the thing that sets it apart at this point from all the other teachings of the world, is the fact that there is a Savior who comes as the Lamb of God, who takes our punishment, who receives every blow. He is our propitiation, our covering. Where did Luther translate? the Old Testament when he spoke of the mercy seat. The mercy seat of God, the covering. One man like Bach writes out of his, his personal experience with the living God and the living Lamb of God and the basis on the basis of the Bible. This is the reason he writes, just as we have sung this morning. In thy mortal sorrow and thy life oblation, the death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. All rests upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus. All rests upon the knowledge that he is the Lamb of God, that great prophetic utterance that came from no lesser place than the Passover Lamb, speaking down through the Old Testament. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ our Passover, sacrificed for us. While we're enemies, he died for us. All rests upon this. All are not just in an ideal realm, an ideal realm, and a realm of idea, but in a hard place, on a cross that was there. A few years ago, if one would say, do you believe that Jesus died? This is all one had to say. Today, because of a flood of a different kind of thinking, one must answer, one must ask, do you believe Jesus Christ died in history, in space, and in time? Reality. The reality of the sin of which we have committed, the reality of the holiness of God, the reality of the judgment of God, the reality of the flaming holiness of God and the flaming judgment of God, but the reality of the shed blood of a Lamb of God on Calvary's cross, executed in space and time and in history, and that when we accept him as our Savior, at that happy moment when we do so, <coughs> that he takes our sin. He becomes our atonement. Again, as Bach wrote, Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone them. My treason against us. Personal infinite holy God who is there. And it would be wrong to spend too little time on this great cry this morning, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, because all rest here. But really I would carry you on this morning. This is only the first thing. John says something else as well. John says something else as well. 
It is, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But John does not stop there. John goes on and he says, with the one who is going, you're going to see the Spirit descending upon him, in the 33rd verse, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Spirit. This is the second word. The first word, the final introduction from the Old Testament prophecy, spoken by John the Baptist, is, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, who is at hand in space and time and history to die for those who will accept him. But his word is just as final, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Oh, the great danger, the great danger of those who hear, if we may say, are off into some liberal form or some other form, the great danger is to minimize the absoluteness and the uniqueness and the finality and the historicity and the completeness of the first. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But those of us who are born-again Christians through the grace of God and have accepted Jesus as our Savior, oh, woe to us, but we are apt to minimize the second word, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ, which is linked here to his baptizing those who accept him as Savior with the Holy Spirit, this was not just in a false world, but actually there was a manifestation of this in the historic world. The place where Jesus was baptized was not in some heavenly thought. It was down at some place, some place by the riverside. Some place at a location of time. Where it had not occurred a few moments before, and now it occurred. Not at another place, even a mile away, but right here. Some place in history and space and time. In our real world, there was the baptizing of the Holy, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus Christ as he began his public ministry. But oh, don't you understand that also at Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit came, it was at a moment. But this is not to be now, you know, our thinking as Christians pushed off into some other realm. It's also to be in my present life. As surely as the baptism of Jesus Christ was at a place of space and in time and in our real world, our space-time framework, so also the reality of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a child of God is not to be pushed off in our mind some other place. It's to be today. The world has a perfect right to turn away from Christianity at two points. The world has a perfect right if we present less than that which the Bible teaches. And the world has a perfect right to turn away if it looks to the born-again Christians who are born-again Christians and sees no manifestation in our present life of the reality, the reality of the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that God is a trinity. Constantly, we have to say that this is just a rather unimportant thing. We always we hear spoken several times of George Bernard Shaw's famous statement that he could believe in Christianity if we got rid of a few of these external unimportant baggages, such as the baggage of the Trinity. But what he doesn't understand that the Christian is that Christianity is the Trinity. Without the Trinity, there is no Christianity. There is something else, but not, but not Christianity present theologian writing in America who has rejected the word of God and the Christian teaching uh, emphasizes, says the fact that the Trinity is impossible from a philosophic or a theological viewpoint. This man doesn't know what he's saying. To reject the Trinity is to reject the wonder of the biblical answers in the intellectual world. But all let me say to those of us who are here this morning who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Trinity is not just to be a clever answer. The Trinity is to be experienced. When? When you stand before the glory throne of God, are you? It's wonderful for what lies ahead. But the glory of the Trinity, the experience of the Trinity, is not only to be in that day when we see Jesus face to face or when our bodies are raised from the dead, but the experience of the Trinity according to the teaching of the Word of God is to be on this day if I have accepted Christ as my Savior. Let us notice in John, the epistle of John, John 1, 1 through 4, 1 John, pardon me, 1 through, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, epistle of John, first chapter 1 through 4, that which was from the beginning, here we're carried back to the gospel of John, of course, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, or the word of life. The same assistance that we find in the epistle of Peter, back in the Gospel of John, wherever we turn, that Jesus Christ is not just a thought, but he is down to be considered in the hard stuff of history, to be heard, to be seen, and to be handled with the hands of those who knew it. But notice how it just leads right on. It doesn't leave it here. It doesn't mean, it doesn't state it merely as a statement of objectivity of doctrine, an objectivity in our doctrine. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested us, unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you see, this is entirely different. This is the second objectivity, if I might speak of it that way. The first objectivity is the historic witness of the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, which is the place where Peter speaks of it in his epistle. The wonder, the wonder of objectivity is the Lord Jesus and his work. The wonder of the objectivity of the Lord Jesus and his work. But we are introduced here to a second objectivity. It is the objectivity of the reality that there must be, if these things are real, and if they are to be exhibited to a lost and a dying world, the objectivity in the Christian's life at the present moment, based upon the objective work of the Lord Jesus Christ as propitiation, based upon who he is, oh yes, all this objective thing, but also the objectivity of an, of an, an exhibition, a demonstration of our fellowship with God. Orthodoxy is right, if one understands orthodoxy aright. But orthodoxy must carry on. There are two orthodoxies. There is the orthodoxy of understanding the objectivity of the work of the Lord Jesus, the objectivity of who he is, of thrusting aside anything that would thrust it into less than a specific space-time world. But there also must be the object, the orthodoxy, the orthodoxy of a demonstration of our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then the conclusion here, and these things write me unto you that your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. Your joy may be full. The wonder of the Westminster Confession of Faith in its Shorter Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, and the first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If one states the first half and states not the second, he has not stated the answer either biblically or according to the Shorter Catechism of the Presbyterian Testimony. To glorify God, but to enjoy Him forever. But when? Just when we see Him face to face? Never, 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 never. Now. That your joy may be full, as John expresses it. Your joy may be full. The joy of being full based upon what? Our orthodoxy, not only but the orthodoxy of our fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Now then, you notice he states two members of the Trinity. He does not just state it as sort of a vague thing, God, an abstract thing, a contentless thing, God. But he brings it down into the reality of the Trinity, the Father and of the Son. There is to be a fellowship in the Christian's life after we have taken Jesus as Savior. When? Tomorrow, yes, but today, in this moment of our existence, with the Father and with the Son. We are to experience a fellowship, and here it refers to two members of the Trinity, and out of this is to flow joy. We have joy merely through orthodoxy. The answer is no. No. You cannot begin until you understand the orthodox teaching, the scriptural teaching, the reality of the history of Man's revolt against God. The reality, therefore, man is guilty before a holy God. The reality and the wonder that God the Father loved us and sent the Son, and the Son was willing to come, and Jesus died for us. The reality of these things, and the acceptance of Christ as Savior. But if we merely say these things, and even if they're real to us, and then we do not live in the area of the second orthodoxy, the true fellowship, the experience of the Trinity in the present life, with the Father as it speaks here, and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, do not expect joy. Just don't expect it. Do not expect joy. 
merely by turning away from the sorrows of the world. Do not expect joy merely by closing your eyes to the horrible things of the world. Do not expect joy in any realm unless one, unless one first of all, comes to the foot of the cross, accepts Jesus as his Savior, but secondly, in the present life, has a reality of fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. In relationship to the Father, in relationship to the Father, last night we mentioned Romans 8.39, the wonder, the wonder of moving deeper into the Trinity in regard to the fact that once we're saved, we're always saved. But again, this is not to be thought of as a merely mechanical thing. It's not to be thought of merely a mechanical thing, that if we have taken Jesus as our Savior, then it's in some just some mechanical sense. Not at all. In the 35th verse of the 8th chapter, who shall, separate us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation and so forth. But in the 39th verse, carried right into the very center of the Trinity itself, the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Father. This is the Father. The reality, the reality that we have in the concept that once we're saved, once we're saved, always we're saved, is we're held fast in the hand of the Son, that we're hand, held in the hand of the Father. In John 1.12, the great word, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. But it's not just to be an idea. It is, it is he that holds me fast. But it is not only that he holds me fast, but there is to be a reality, a reality of fellowship with the Father now, well, what does this mean? Well, in order to take it out of merely words, let's turn to that which we have seen in our responsive reading this morning. Not a very happy passage, in a sense, and yet a very basic one. And basically, the basis of all true happiness <coughs> in these areas. And Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Speaking here of the fatherliness of the father, to be experienced in the present life. But in what area? Well, other parts of the New Testament give us such marvelous things as the God of peace. And this is the father, the God of peace, will deal with our souls and give us peace. But here we are brought down again into the hard stuff of reality. Where we read in this 11th verse, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. You notice the word joyous? In 1 John, we have read that as we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, we have joy. But now speaking of God's loving dealing with us, God the Father dealing with us, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised by, thereby. This is an understanding, a practice of the fatherliness of God the, God the Father. The experience of the Trinity, the Father in the present life. When I have become his child through Jesus Christ and I turn away deliberately and go back into the ways of sin, he will not let me therein rest and not say he will not fail to deal with me in a strenuous way if necessary. Oh, but this is the way of joy. It is not joyous, quite properly here spoken to be chastened at the moment. But when we exercise thereby, when we stand in the reality of the presence of the Father and accept the chastening and it comes back to him and tell him we're sorry when we bring these things under the shed blood, and we have the reality now of the chastening and are exercised thereby, now indeed there may be Christian joy. Joy when? In the future, but joy in the present. Joy where? In just some idea land, not one bit of it, but right down in the hard stuff of my present life. And if there isn't this, there's something wrong. The Trinity is not merely an abstract doctrine. There is no Christianity without the doctrine of the Trinity. But the Trinity is not merely an abstract doctrine. It is to be practiced, it is to be experienced in the reality of the Christian's life, not tomorrow, but today. But it is not only the Father. In 1 John, we were told that this practice of the fellowship is to be with the Father and the Son. And if you will turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, 2, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, this also is here in emphasis. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And with this, related to it, Romans 7, 4. Romans 7, 4. 
Therefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. In order that ye should be married to another, even him who is raised from the dead, in order that we should bring forth fruit unto God. We are saved to bring forth fruit unto God. But how? How? Oh, don't you see what God is emphasizing here? As we have seen in other portions now, though we can only look at a few verses in such a short time as this, there is to be a fellowship with the Father, but there is to be a reality of the fellowship with the Son. Eastern religions are constantly speaking of the value of their mysticism, but there is no mysticism like Christian mysticism in the true sense. The wonder of the fact that without the loss of personality is perfectly possible on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ to be in fellowship with the Son. Now, the old theological term was the mystical union with Christ. This is not to be merely an idea. None of these things are allowed or allowed in the Word of God to be mere abstraction, something transcendental, an idea or an ideal. They're each brought down into the hard space-time stuff of my present moment of life. I am now to be as the bride of Christ. This is not just a thought, it is to be reality, that as the bride, as the bride gives herself to the husband, and the child is born, so we are to give ourselves to Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, constantly. And out of this is to come forth fruit unto God. This has overwhelming practical, practical significance. As I was speaking in our study of Romans in Lausanne uh, the other night, in our class there, there is something faulty in the Anglo-Saxon emphasis on Christian character. There is something faulty the emphasis that we have, we tend to have that now you're saved, have a Christian character. This is not the teaching of the Word of God. If you depend on your Christian character, and if we teach our children to depend upon their Christian character, they will fail and we will fail at the moment of test. The Bible does not teach us that now having accepted Jesus as our Savior, there is something strong in us as a great cable that will bear a great bridge. We reject in our theology the Roman Catholic teaching that there is an infused righteousness. Or all the letters not try to live then on the basis of that which we have rejected theologically. We are justified in the moment when we accept Jesus as our Savior, as, a, as God declares that he, his work has covered our guilt and our guilt is gone. But now we are introduced to something far more wonderful than merely the little thing that I am moving across the curve of the world in which I live in. Facing, facing the great reaches of space. Something much more wonderful than some sort of an infused righteousness be poured into me. It is something much more wonderful. I am brought into mystical union with the Son of God. Strength without limits. To be drawn upon. As Mary Mary could present herself to God as the Holy Spirit spoke and said, You are to bring forth now the Messiah. And her answer was the only biblical answer. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. And from this, the Holy Spirit dealt with her, and Jesus Christ was born, physically born from her womb. Paul here seems to be referring to this very same, same concept, and we actually have this very same thing of the birth of Jesus in mind, but whether he does or not, he insists, as the Bible constantly insists, that having accepted Jesus as our Savior in the present life, we are to be the bride of Christ. We are to present ourselves to him, not tomorrow, but today. And as we do, there is to be a reality, a reality of him bringing forth fruit to himself and to God, the Father, through the power of the Spirit. Mystical union. What do we know about it? What do we, how do we practice it? Do we practice the presence of the second person of the Trinity? Do we experience, in some sense, the reality of giving ourselves to God and seeing him bring forth fruit through us beyond ourselves, not by some mythical Christian character or inward strength, but through the wonder of him doing it through us, through us with his power on the basis of what he is, of the eternal second person of the Trinity, but also the wonder of the finished work of the cross. 
Jesus himself presents the same concept, of course, in another place in John, using a slightly different expression, but with obviously the same thrust involved in John 15. John 15. Will you hear the words of the Lord Jesus himself? I am the true vine, and the Father is the husband. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean to the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. What is the call? Just some thought? Not a bit of it. The reality of abiding in Jesus Christ after having accepted him as Savior. As the same thing, the same is true with a bride in the vine. Neither can bear fruit of themselves. Neither can bear fruit of themselves. All but the Word of God is insisting upon there is to be not only a teaching of the Trinity as an intellectual answer, but the experience of the Trinity. The fatherliness of the Father, the God of peace, his loving, chastening hand, and drawing our strength not from ourselves and some infused thing within ourselves, something that we, weak things that we are, but the wonder of drawing our strength from the vine, from the bridegroom, and him producing the fruit. When? Tomorrow? But the day of redemption with the resurrection of the body, yes, yes, 10,000 times yes, but today. Today. I'm going to carry on. But there is a third person, the Trinity, and we are called upon in the Word of God also to experience the reality of the third person, the Trinity. The Holy Spirit sometimes is pushed aside, not only in unorthodox circles, but orthodox circles, but not, not in the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we have the great apostolic benediction. Usually called the apostolic benediction. Often given in many of the Reformed churches, the Church of the Reformation, that is, at the end of the service, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. He's speaking to the Christians here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. The communion, as we point out here many times in the French, the French translation is better to the Greek, it's the communication of the Holy Spirit. We have here the reality of the agency of the third person of the Trinity in our present life if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus, when he was ready to die, ready to leave, his, apostle, his disciple, he was very insistent at this time, point that he was not going to leave them as orphans. In John 14, 16 through 20, John 14, 16 through 20, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. The word comforter, one way to translate this, may also be translated as the advocate, as the protector, the supporter, the agent of the Trinity, is the concept. I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. This is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Not just a thought, mind you, like the Spirit of 1776 or the Spirit of John Bull, something like this, but a person, a person, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans. It's one of the places where the King James translation has translated poorly. Those of you who have other translations, for instance the French, will find it's orphans. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. But he tells us how. He goes on and insists on the how. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. It's the coming of the Comforter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communication of the Holy Spirit be with you all who have taken Jesus as Savior. This is Jesus' promise. Paul is not adding anything here. This is Jesus' promise. We are not left orphans. We are not left orphans. In the 23rd verse, and Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. This is related to the 20th verse. The communication 
of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The reality of the agency of the Holy Spirit dealing with the individual Christian, the individual Christian's life, the experience of this, not in some mystical sense of being an empirical experience that cannot have content and does not have content, but the reality of experience of it in the Christian's life. In Romans 8, 9, we won't look this up, our time is almost gone, but in Romans 8, 9, it's insisted upon that if we are not, if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. In other words, that each individual Christian who has accepted Jesus as a Savior at a point of history now in the past, with his salvation rooted at two great historic space-time points, the death of Jesus on the cross and the moment of accepting Jesus as Savior, in the present time, we are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But this is brought down in two passages to a very practical relationship again, just as the reality of fellowship of the Father and the fellowship of the Son is not allowed to be an abstraction, but brought down into the reality of experience in the present life, so also the communication of the Holy Spirit is brought down into a Christian's life at the present moment with the greatest, greatest care. Oh, what is wrong with the Church of Jesus Christ? Not the liberal Church of Jesus Christ. What's wrong with the Orthodox Church of Jesus Christ? It is a failure, a failure to understand, to act upon in faith, to walk out upon the reality, the reality of the dealing of the Trinity in the individual Christian's life in the present moment of history. How terrible to take the great creeds of the church and make them mean something opposite, the very opposite of what the writers meant. But how terrible also to believe the creeds of the church and not live upon them in the grace of God on the basis of finished work of Jesus Christ. The Trinity is not presented merely as an abstraction. These great verses is not are the, in John 14 that we have read. The great, the great uh, apostolic benediction is meant, not merely meant to be like a piece of Bach played on the organ without words. It's not to be when I am lonely that I read John 14 and have a, have a feeling, a feeling of something that cannot be expressed out of and put down into words and content and experienced in, in a practical way. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. It's not when I am lonely that I wander into some darkened cathedral and hear the apostolic benediction, the communication of the Holy Spirit, and go out with some sense of awareness. Oh, God forbid that it should be only so. It is brought down into the very real stuff of the significant space-time world. In 1 Corinthians 6.19. 1 Corinthians 6.19. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is not the church as a unit. It is the individual believer. One will look at the passage with care. It is the individual believer. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When? Not just with a resurrected body. No. And even more expressly, in Ephesians 5, and of course any of these passages could have a whole sermon time and more devoted to them individually, but we'll try to draw it not just for an individual study, but to see a bit more of the flow in Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, and then 21. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as what fools, but as wise. Written to those who have accepted Jesus as Savior, written for us in our present walk, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Oh, there is a devil. There is an evil one. The days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise. This is contrast to the 15th verse, be wise. But understanding what the will of the Lord is. Surely this passage could stand several sermon times. Do you want to understand what the will of the Lord is in your present life? There is a condition imposed. The 18th verse, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. To be an experienced relationship with the third person of the Trinity. To be drunk with wine is an experienced thing. To be to speak an escape, as it were. Something like this. 
But here there is to be the experienced reality of being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit who lives within the individual Christian, the third person of the Trinity, the communication of the Holy Ghost. It is to be experienced in the individual Christian life as we commit ourselves to Him to be filled with the Spirit. Then the 17th verse has meaning, understanding what the will of the Lord is. But notice that this being filled with the Spirit is not a, merely an ecstatic experience. It's not merely an ecstatic experience. My good reformed friends would always say there are great dangers in subjectivism. So there are. So there are. But there are great dangers in not laying hold upon God's promises in our present life and the reality of it as well. Not merely an ecstatic experience. Is put down on tracks. It is put down into the area again of space-time reality. The first result: speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do you remember? Do you remember the speech of John in First John? We re read that we might have fellowship with the son, and with the Son, that we might have joy. Do you remember that which is spoken of God the Father in the book of Hebrews, which we have read? Wherein we are well with exercise by the chastening, the loving chastening hand of the Father, that it results in joy? It is the same here. When we indeed come under, come under the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament sense, experiencing the reality of fellowship, the indwelling of the third person in the Trinity, the first thing is joy. <coughs> joy. Joy expressed. Joy expressed. Not joy just by sort of fixing a smile, but the joy of reality on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The joy of, of fellowship with the Father and the Son and here the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communication of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a very great difference between making melody outwardly and making melody in one's heart. These are not the same thing. We can sing the doxology 60,000 times over and not sing it once in our heart. We can give an outward expression of some sort of peace and have very little inward expression in our heart. But this is something much more deeper on the reality of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and committing ourselves to the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there can be a making melody not just outward, from the lips outward, but in the heart. It can be there in reality and not just in words. But you notice there's something else. There's something else in the 20th verse, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll not deal with that, though it could be dealt with with care. And then the 21st verse, being filled with the Spirit and these things Experiencing the communication of the Holy Spirit will result also into something else in a most practical space-time relationship, the significance of history, the significance of our human relationships. In the 21st verse, submitting yourself one to another in the fear of God. And then the, then the relationships are spelled out. They are not the relationships of a transcendental world. They're the relationships of the 24-hour-a-day space-time world in which we live. Wives with husbands, children with parents, Servants with masters, masters with servants, fathers with children, husbands with wives. This is the place to which the Word of God does bring. After we are saved and have stepped into the world of the Trinity, who has existed forever and who has created the world out of nothing, but has created it really and with significance, the Christian's calling is not just merely to state these things in creedal form but to live upon the basis of them, to have some experience upon them by the grace of God. After we are saved, our calling as creatures is to love God the Father, <coughs> love God the Son, and love the Holy Spirit. And it would be wrong to end it without bringing it down to the practical thing that when you and I sin in any area, just something of this is spoiled. The reality begins to flow away from us, the way static electricity flows out of an amber rod. But thank God, while sin is real, and when you and I sin, 
The reality begins to be lost. The outward thing may be kept, but the inward thing may, is lost. The orthodoxy may be kept outwardly, but the reality of the orthodoxy is lost. It would only be right to say that it is wonderful, is it not, that after we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we find that the reality begins to grow dim, that it does not need to be lost forever. But the wonder we come back now, the word of John the Baptist again, the second was he would baptize us with the Holy Spirit, he who was baptized, but the first great introduction was, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. One must begin with it and one must end with it. The reality of the Holy Spirit is not just to be a sanctified common sense. The reality of the Holy Spirit is to be a communion of the Holy Spirit. But when it grows less than real, and those things we have done or failed to do, the sin which crops in upon us, the sins and the weights that's spoken of in Hebrews 11, which we have read, isn't it wonderful that the blood of the Lamb of God is there, not only for the once-for-all cleansing when we accepted Jesus as our Savior, but the moment-by-moment cleansing when we have allowed sin to come between us in this marvelous church. wonderful to know the once-for-all cleansing of the blood of the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The cry, the cry, it is finished. The cry that finished is Jesus Christ. But let us never forget that the experience of the reality of the Trinity also is to be experienced in this, that when you and I fall again into sin after we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, we just don't have to flower it off from our own strength to go on and pretend it isn't there. But the great fountain filled with blood once for there is a once-for-all cleansing, the justification, the guilt being removed forever. But thank God, the experience of the Trinity is also this in the present life before we see him face to face and before Jesus comes again. But when I stumble and fall, when I deliberately turn aside again, there remains the moment-by-moment -moment cleansing of the blood. Behold the Lamb of God, take us away, the sin of the world. To come back as the creature. Acknowledge my sin to be sin and bring it under the shed blood and then to go on with my conscience first, my fellowship restored, once more now, face to face, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with nothing between on the basis of the cleansing power of the Lamb of God. And so the word of John the Baptist should strike our hearts this morning. Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. And he upon whom you see the Spirit descending, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world.